0: Welcome to Regulatory Ramblings, a term that's often thrown around these days is Web3. While we may surmise it's the next iteration of the internet, the average person is often clueless as to what, if anything, it will mean for them. Our guest today is here to shed some light on the matter, as well as what it means to be a Web3 lawyer. Jamilia Greer is a Dubai-based American tech and data lawyer specializing in data compliance, regulatory matters, and cross-border transactions. She also hosts the Barely Legal in Web 3 podcast and is the founder and CEO of her own firm, ByteBow. Possessing over 15 years of experience as an attorney, she served as in-house counsel at some of the largest multinational corporations on earth in fields as varied as fintech, aerospace, defense, hospitality, and banking. In keeping with the changing times, Jamilia has expanded her expertise and now serves a diverse range of clients, including web three businesses, individuals looking to launch their own web three ventures, as well as those seeking to learn more about the field. She's probably best described as an entrepreneurial and technology-focused senior legal counsel. And again, her experience navigating complex legal and regulatory environments across the APAC region and now in the Middle East is, is, some, is, is something to be lauded. Uh, her career spanning really across multiple Fortune 500 companies in the industries named is uh, quite an achievement. And her focus now is developing effective regulatory compliance strategies, managing risk and uh, adequate government reporting and ensuring legal and ethical best practices for her clients. And with that, Jamelia, thank you for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me on the show, AJ.
0: Much obliged. Much obliged. So, if you were to explain, not not just to a layperson but to someone who is particularly tech savvy, I mean, explain it to me if I was five years old. What's the best way to think of Web three? Is and is Web three that infrastructurally different from Web two or other incarnations of the web?
1: You know, the best way to think of Web three is to start with the root. Of what it actually is. It's all about decentralization. So in our environment of web two, information is owned, data is owned, it's centralized, it's owned by certain parties, it's owned by your Google, your Uber, um, your, your, you know, your, your PayPal, your Airbnb. In the web three environment, we operate the network where the information is decentralized, which means it's not owned by any one party. It rests on a network, it's accessible to any and everyone, and it's transparent. And that is really the basis of what Web3 is. And any kind of use case of Web3, whether it's NFTs, cryptocurrency, metaverse, uh, you think about DAOs, which are decentralized autonomous organizations, all of those use cases all of those applications of the technology fall back on decentralization so there's you know there's all these arguments about whether something is web3 or whether something isn't i always say does it have an aspect of decentralization to it if so throw it in the web3
0: basket okay fair enough so then we then we come to what it takes to mean, what it takes to be a Web3 lawyer. Now, increasingly, you're seeing more people tout themselves as, package themselves as, market themselves as Web3 lawyers. If you look at their backgrounds all too often, these are not attorneys coming at it with backgrounds in, in STEM fields. These are not techies turned lawyers. Oftentimes it's people who are dispute resolution lawyers and their clients had a, you know, a dispute in the metaverse or something involving implicating a Web three issue, and that's how they got drawn into it. So, with, I mean, and that, that that's just my perspective. I'll be keen to hear yours. Yeah. What is it? What does it take to be a Web three lawyer? I mean, how tech lawyers need to become.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting question because. You know, I've I've worked with data and technology my whole career um, and in all different ways and forms from blueprints of aerospace parts and components to data that rests in the cloud relating to a hospitality app. Um, I really think having an understanding of data and technology is certainly helpful um, in this space because these use cases and these different applications of web three are going to continue to come about and they're going to change and they're going to change rapidly. I mean, we saw it with NFTs. When NFTs first came out on the market, everything was what we call a PFP NFT, a profile picture. It was a cute little you know, cute little drawing, uh, you know, little, little animal with a cartoon uh, face and, and no one thought anything more about it. And they just said, yeah, I'll buy this, right? And then we started to, it started to change and evolve. And the ways that NFTs are being used started to change and evolve, but that's all based upon the technology and the understanding of the technology. And all of these disputes about smart contracts, royalties and so on and so forth are all stemmed back to the technology. So I really think that a strong understanding of the data and technology, and particularly the technology um, as it relates to blockchain is really a good foundation for being a web3 lawyer
0: okay clearly there are applications for nfts beyond the realm of just jpegs for sale and then you know speculation related to that but i i can't help but wonder i mean um how how, how much of that how, how much of that is is hype? because i mean NFTs have gotten such a bad rap that certainly the word on the street, I mean, amongst many lay people is it's a scam. It's it's something to be steered clear of. Again, there are other applications, there are other utilities for it, but um, that that seems to have gotten lost um, in, in, uh, in, in, in the mix. The other thing I wanted to raise was that it it it'd be hard to not raise the issue of decentralized finance how much of it how much of it has merit how much of it is is hype and a scam in your view and to what extent should people be on their guard
1: i think we're at very early days in terms of really harnessing understanding and quite frankly protecting consumers when it comes to the various use cases of Web3, whether it's, it's DeFi, it's, you know, NFTs or whether even in the metaverse or DAOs, we're still at very early stages of that. Um, I'm from a generation, you may remember something called Napster um which was a platform where you could basically get music for free right um and you Generate, know, people... generation x too.
0: yeah i remember it well yep yep
1: yeah. <laughs> right and and so napster came on the scene it was super cool but it was pirating music and it was renegade and the way that it was launched and the way that it was used was not was not the way that intellectual property and the way that the protection of the music industry was seen at that time. Um, But as time evolved, there was a general understanding of how to use this technology in a way where artists could maintain uh, their rights and protect their rights in the music industry and also benefit and monetize from streaming. So we're in the Napster days. Uh, We're in the days where, you know, you know, generally as an industry across various various uh, cuts of Web3, there are a lot of gaps. There are a lot of spaces where consumers aren't protected or owners are not protected, whether it's NFTs or or other ways. Um, And there's there are dangers, quite frankly. Um, I think that we are moving in the right direction. But the question is, how long is it going to take?
0: Fair point. Fair point. Na- and Napster, I, I mean, that N- Napster implicated IP issues clearly, but it also reflected how far technology had come. I remember taking my first course in copyright law in the U.S. in uh, the summer of 2000, and several t- two 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 points that stuck with me was at that point was the difference. In, in the world between 95 and 2000, largely because of how far the technology had come, but the laws hadn't kept pace, notwithstanding the, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was passed uh, in, in the second term of the Clinton administration. But the other thing was, and this is what our prof stressed, was that it, the technology had reached such a stage that it was you were almost incentivized to just press the button and download and copy because, again, the technology was so fast, so cheap, so efficient. All you had to do was pop in a CD-ROM, burn a CD, and, you know, you, 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 you were on your way. And, and, and okay, they, they nailed Napster. They brought Napster to heel. But in the long run, the industry lost that battle. Because again, the, the technology was progressing at such a fast rate that I can tell you that there, there are plenty of people in the music industry that that detest YouTube, that abhor YouTube, because the the way things have progressed, uh, it, it, it's it's killed the CD market. What does that mean then for banks? In, 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 if I were to use that metaphor, I mean. Will will Web three and DeFi cut them out of the loop? Will, will things that they normally got their cut off that you know they, they got a cut on transactions they got to, they got their fees? Will they be cut out of the loop?
1: Banks will have to evolve. Quite frankly, banks will have to start creating products and services that offer the same types of efficiencies that Napster offered to downloaders back in the day. Um, and then you see that with a number of banks. Um, some banks have you know, uh, separate arms where they um, you know, test out different ventures in, in digital uh, finance and in Web3 and blockchain. And, and they're really trying. And I think they're all racing to see, number one, what can be created Number two, what are the regulatory licenses that are needed? And there are some digital banks that are operating in various jurisdictions that have had some success. But I think it's a bit beyond digital banking, right? I mean, we're, we're, we're talking the next step. So they just got to the digital banking and now they're being asked, Hey, in addition to that, throw some crypto in there too, (laughs) right? And, and the risk to banks is that they fully don't, they don't fully understand the product itself. Um, and quite frankly, it's, It's just a risk that they might be forced to take.
0: Well, on that point, understanding the product itself, I mean, one would do good to explain to the average person the broadly speaking four flavors of financial services. And of course, there are hybrid products, but that basically it's banking, securities, futures, and insurance. You throw crypto into the mix, and it was. Came up yesterday in my discussion with uh, Lee Reiners at Duke University and, and uh, Sangita Ghazi, uh, one of our uh, PhD students. What what what's the average person to think of crypto and where that fits into this mix? Is it a payment service? Is it a digital commodity? Is it a virtual currency? Uh, you know, that's that's the three sided pyramid that that is crypto, uh, and beyond that. What are regulators and policymakers to make of it? Because oftentimes they're not techies, and they're they're not that tech savvy, or or maybe this it goes just beyond being tech savvy, and it, it it's more about having a vision of the long term role and the, and the place of crypto uh, and its virtues and its merits in society. But but it, it, again, it comes down to what the average person is to make of it and they're not quite sure where it fits in the existing uh, array of financial services and products that they're being offered
1: yeah you're, you're absolutely right and i i would tend to think it's the latter i would tend to think it's a question of who is the user yeah. and how are they using it You look at markets in, you know, in, in Western Africa and in other parts of Africa in particular, where crypto has played a very different role, um, than it would play in other societies. It's become more so of a necessity. Um, and it is, you know, kind of viewed as a, a more, uh, permanent alternative, uh, to using other currencies. And, and so I think it depends on who the user is. I think it depends on why it's being used. And that will vary from country to country uh, as we, as we go along. And and quite frankly, from user to user, uh, more sophisticated users, uh, your institutional investors may be interested in cryptocurrency in the terms of uh, ETFs, the, um, you know, the, the, the baskets of, of funds that, that can be used and, and have that sort of flexibility and see it as an advantage there. Whereas your everyday Joe uh, would need it to go and purchase uh, eggs at the market.
0: Crypto has done remarkably well, I found, in the development, certainly in parts of Africa. And I, I first saw the signs of this uh, when I interacted with some people uh, in, uh, this was what, December of 2014 at the first. Bitcoin event to be held at the DIFC, and uh, yeah, I mean that it was cheaper to typically cheaper to send money. Not always at that point, it was typically cheaper to send money using Bitcoin than going through the remittance services or, or the banks. And uh, you know, outfits like Bitpesa. I mean, they made a bet on it, and it, and it, it, it paid off in abundance. I mean, the the uptake was huge. And we we should not underestimate, even if these youngsters are accessing the web by phone, how tech savvy uh, many of, of the young people are in these countries, as well as, uh, you know, we shouldn't downplay their ambitions and their aspirations. And, and in that regard, crypto certainly helped facilitate a lot of that
1: right and and i would add that there are two major markets that have not really jumped into the ring in terms of the use of crypto which are china and india um how you know what will be the implications of those two markets being more engaged and being more actively involved Um, when they are allowed to fully avail themselves of it. And and there are so many unknowns in terms of numbers and and the types of use cases. Uh, It's a very exciting time to be in the space.
0: Agreed. Uh, I I can say certainly with having grown up in a Chinese city, I'd say this applies both the Indians and the Chinese. The feeling is that which I can't touch and hold is not real. So they're more likely to put their faith in gold, jewelry, cash, real estate than they are in something that's digital and they feel could be taken with them with with, um, with a stroke of a key. Uh, and to the extent that some of the older generation are buying into it and they're giving the younger members of their family the cash to get into crypto it's the whole bandwagon effect uh, fear of missing out others are getting wealthy we're, we're not so one can't have a conversation again about web 3 without discussing the metaverse i mean how how should it be regulated i mean we, we've had our first case of an assault in the metaverse and like again, who's again, how, how does one regulate that kind of environment? How does how, how is it to be governed and if so, whose rules should be brought to bear? Because on, on the one hand, there's a view that it's out there in the ether, it's its own domain, so it should have its own set of rules. By the same token, you don't access the internet without servers. Servers exist in actual physical locations. And nation states, the authorities can exercise jurisdiction over those servers. So, is is it is it as much of a legal quandary as some people suggest? Uh, and 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 what is what is the utility of the metaverse? Because, frankly, I mean, pe- people view it through the lens of artificial reality, augmented reality. Uh, you know what what why why even bother
1: yeah why, why i think i think that use case has yet to be i mean adoption has not has not really started yet in terms of the metaverse right i mean i've seen um, a lot of interesting uh things online i've seen law firms that have offices in the metaverse um and you know it, it's interesting uh, but I think until we have mass adoption, we t- until we have people really embracing it and using it on a day-to-day basis, um, being forefront of mind and saying, you know, let me go meet my friend in the metaverse. Um, a- until that happens, it's it's not really clear at this time, at least to me, what, you know, how we'll be using it on a day-to-day basis. Um, but in terms of these legal disputes that can happen, cross-border legal disputes, you know, countries will ultimately come up with their own rules and regulations um, on how they will govern disputes that happen in the metaverse and hopefully there'll be some some sort of consensus across the different jurisdictions, you know, GDPR was a great case of. You know, EU coming forward and, and having this this ideal framework and then other countries just decided that that would be the framework that they would base their framework on so maybe we'll have a similar sort of pioneer in terms of regulating the metaverse
0: yeah yeah gdpr became a global thing because uh and and it's it's surprising that you know there isn't there's no national data privacy act in in in, in the u.s uh, so the europeans really were innovators in that regard uh, Let's talk about technophobia in the legal profession because I mean, yeah. we we live in a world where many lawyers, frankly, don't even want to use e-contracts.
1: Yeah, it's you know it's a shame, isn't it? Um, and I you know this is something I think I'm I'm quite passionate about because, especially if you are a technology lawyer, right? If you e- even if you know if you're a business lawyer, if you're if you're doing corporate work or transactional work, to not understand. Some of these basic tenants and to not use them because really to use these things is to understand them that really does a disservice to yourself and then and also to your clients as well, and I really think as a profession, you know there's a connection between this technophobia and then also this risk averse mentality that lawyers have. Um, I mean, we're trained to follow the rules and, and regulations, of course, um, but from a business standpoint and from a practical standpoint, a lawyers as a profession, um, you know, would benefit from from being a bit more risk-loving, as us economists call it, and, and stepping outside of the box.
0: Many lawyers, I feel, again, are, are trapped. Well, they're, they're caught up in the trappings of, of an earlier age and thinking that yesterday's forums and a little bit of professional jargon, a little bit of Latin, a little bit of, you know, a French, a uh, little bit of old English, that that, 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 will get them by. Uh, and it's a rude awakening for certainly for many of them. Uh, do you, there's a sense though, that AI will impact low level white collar workers uh, if you're a, a proofreader or secretary or, you, you may you may need to worry uh, w- will ai or chat gpt replace the, the legal profession to any extent
1: i think in the short term ai chat gpt other sorts of you know those sorts of tools should help the legal profession uh, it should help lawyers understand how to craft arguments uh, more soundly. In the long term, uh, who knows? Who knows where it could lead? But in the short term, I think it definitely is a tool that lawyers should embrace. I think that lawyers that don't embrace it Uh, will find themselves more costly and maybe, uh, you know, price themselves out of the market. I mean, if a client has to decide between paying, um, you know, X for work that can be done in an hour or X times two and then, you know, take five hours to do it, I am sure that they would like it done faster and cheaper. So lawyers need to embrace these tools and it will only make you more competitive.
0: Oh, for for sure. I mean, I, I saw the first shades of this you know, more, about over two decades ago. I mean, this was clearly the late 90s. I remember sitting in my, you know, professional responsibility class, what was in an earlier age called legal ethics. And, um, you know, the point was, lawyers were battling professional services. The big four had legal services units and they were offering legal services for a package deal, Yeah. without you know the the you know the dreaded billable hour, which clients dread, mm-hmm. and uh, you know they they were competing head to head against lawyers. And it, pe- pe- people forget that it, 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 lawyers are often seen nowadays as a fungible good. Maybe that that that's 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 the wrong way to look at it but, um it's 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 that billable hour and and how there doesn't seem to be any the checks on that seem to be difficult to impose. Uh, I, mean, I mean, some sometimes the client has more leverage in negotiating that than, than, than other times if we should fingers if we were to compare contract terms for metaverse versus services, I mean, I mean, is that low-hanging fruit? But I mean, but what's less covered are the IP issues as well as issues of AI beyond lawyers being replaced by Chat GPT and including deep fakes, wrong info from AI and explainability. So if you use NFTs in the metaverse for digital property transfer, are there also NFT uh, other NFT related issues that 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 people have seem to be harping on this? That there are risks associated with nft management your thoughts
1: there are a whole host of licensing issues and royalty you know royalty issues that have come about in the nft industry uh, to date that once again these things weren't really identified at the outset Uh, if you have nfts that that come with ownership rights of the pfp um, the question is how how do you enforce those uh, that still remains to be seen. And then if the NFT is sold, uh, those rights should follow. Uh, what if they what, what if that is not respected? How do you enforce that? And so what we're seeing is that theres some litigation that comes from this, but a lot of times these holders don't really have the means or resources to litigate matters. So things go unchecked. And these are the sorts of issues that, as lawyers, as, as we help clients um, launch and, and put together different projects, we need to make sure that the project understands that, you know, you, you're you issuing this, but you also need to think about the people who are purchasing it and how they'll protect their rights. And sometimes terms and conditions that are drafted don't really cover the, the whole space.
0: That's that's a valid point. Uh... So, when it comes to disputes arising from the metaverse, I mean, it seems to me that a big issue is evidence and how to collect it. And without evidence, a lot of enforcement and dispute resolution matters are moot. Is is discovery difficult in a metaverse setting? I mean, you know, there's this whole.
1: Oh, go ahead. Go ahead.
0: I mean, clearly, enforcement is is can be cumbersome in a in a metaverse setting, but is discovery also difficult in a metaverse setting?
1: Well, in terms of evidence, there's this whole uh, book of work that's now been been created um, forensics within blockchain. And these people are extremely talented and extremely well equipped to trace back events, you know using the information that's on that's on the network trace back events and understand what has happened in different points in time um the question is how how that's used in court i think that's a different question it depends upon the court but i think that the blockchain has served its purpose in terms of making sure that things are transparent and visible um, one of the complexities we've seen in in terms of frauds and scams that happen within this web 3 space is the ability of scammers to move assets so quickly and to be able to move them almost instantaneously from one wallet to another, uh, thereby creating an intricate web of uh, transfers and and movements of payments, and that just makes things more difficult. Um, But certainly the information is there and it can be collected.
0: Okay, Okay. Fair, fair point. Lastly on the topic of DAOs, decentralized organizations, I mean do you do you see much interest in them? I mean what 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 benefits do they offer? I mean what's their utility?
1: Sure. So DAOs yeah. DAOs are organizations that are created and and supposedly this whole idea of decentralization comes into play with the governance. And so the organization is governed by voting, by the members who either hold tokens or NFTs. And how all of that, those voting rights are structured is determined at the outset. What we're seeing in the use case of DAOs is essentially a DAO LLC. There are various states in the US that allow the registration of DAOs. And I have seen a few business cases where it's been beneficial to create a DAO. Um, particularly for single asset entities, creating a DAO in order to hold an asset like real estate and then having the real estate um, be sort of the sole asset and and other people investing in that through the DAO. So it it really depends on the business case, but we've seen some use cases of it. I think what I'm more interested to see is when the problems arise and how those problems are litigated, because that's when we really learn um, how to structure deals moving forward. It's all well and good when you know states come forward and say, yes, register with us. It's even better when there's actually litigation that um, informs you on the right way to structure things.
0: Certainly when, when the rubber meets the road, which brings me to my next point. I mean, from a policy and regulatory perspective in terms of crafting the rules for the road, uh, what how should policymakers what should policymakers keep in their minds when they draft rules for the web3 world
1: policymakers I'm a big proponent of policymakers working with industry when it comes to this we really need to have everyone at the table we can no longer afford um, frameworks that are created in a box Um, There has to be input both from academia and industry in order to assure that all interests are being heard. There's a huge argument of ethics right now, that ethics is absent in the creation of AI, all of these artificial intelligence use cases that are coming up. And we have seen very little in terms of regulation um, for, for AI at this point. And that is something that is extremely pressing. So unfortunately, regulation moves slow. But if there can be more working groups of academia, industry, and government together, constantly working, even before issues arise, I think that really is what needs to happen in this emerging technology space as a whole.
0: But collaboration from industry is one thing that There is a sense then that you might end up in a situation where, you know, kind of like in the aftermath of the global financial crisis, you had the mammoth Dodd-Frank Act and then people felt that many of the provisions were watered down because the people from the industry, particularly former members of Goldman Sachs who were in the Obama administration, got in on the act of writing some key provisions And then you look at the example of Dubai where there's a feeling that VARA, the Virtual Asset Regulatory Authority, has given the industry too much of what they want. In effect, a light-touch regulatory scheme. And some would say post-2008, light-touch is akin to no regulation and that it's fostered a Wild West environment. You, You can see how... And again, a part of this is perception. The perception can become reality. But there is a fear that the industry may, it may have too much input. And because and regulators will throw up their arms and say, Okay, you're the experts. We're not techies. You're the experts. You tell us what you want. You tell us kind of like a doctor saying, Does this note you know meet your needs for, for work? Uh, there, there's that concern.
1: I'm of the viewpoint that In working groups, every every part has a role, so academia's role is to inform of the facts. These are the way that things are, this is what we've seen, this is what the data says. Industry's role is to inform of the market. This is how the market works, this is how our business works, this is what we would like. But at the end of the day, it's the regulator's role to decide what should be put in place. And I think there's a huge gap there (laughs) in terms of needing to step up to the table and and to decide that. So it should be an informed decision based upon data and based upon what the market says. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, regulators need to make the call and they need to make that. I mean, that's what they're elected for, quite frankly.
0: Well, I think President Obama put it best. And it it, again, it's um, it's it's more of a hortatory statement. It's more aspirational. The Obama administration did not always meet it, but it, it, it's something we we should strive for. What he said was basically regarding, you know, the role of the input of the financial sector in drafting the rules post 2009 was they'll get a seat at the table, but that doesn't mean they can buy the entire table. Yeah. You know, I, I think that's probably the approach that one needs to take. Um, those were all the questions I had for you. Is is there anything else you feel we didn't cover? Anything you, you'd like to share? I mean, just particularly with our students, given our university affiliation, uh, what what advice would you have for them in terms of what they need to know about Web3, how tech savvy the lawyer of the 21st century needs to be? I mean, clearly a recurring theme on our show is your success in twenty first century is going to be not only how well how well do you work with technology how well do the fruits of your labors your effort your technology your skill your experience how well do they complement the outcomes that can be delivered by technology and if the answer is in the affirmative you have a future if not might might be a little bleak. Um, What what, what would you like to say to our students?
1: There's one thing that lawyers are not so good at. Unfortunately, it's collaborating. Uh, The profession is highly competitive. Um, But if you are new in the profession, it's time to change all of that. It's time to collaborate. Um, I think particularly in the space of emerging technology, there's a huge opportunity for lawyers to come together and to share learnings and to share their understanding of not just how the technology works, but what kind of solutions they're crafting for clients. And we, we are the ultimate gatekeepers, lawyers. Uh, we're, we're ultimate gatekeepers when it comes to, you know, how how things are serviced and built. Um, You know, within ByteBow, we have a mastermind um, where we come together and we discuss these things and lawyers share their viewpoints on how things are working, whether it's, you know, how they're crafting solutions with respect to DAOs, or how they're crafting solutions with respect to legal entity structuring. Mm-hmm. And I really think that's needed in the profession, particularly in emerging tech. And just keep learning, keep learning, keep collaborating. And that's what the profession needs.
0: We recently had a Silicon Valley lawyer um, on the show. And I mean, and maybe because of their environment, you know, where they are, they are in a tech rich environment um, and an entre- certainly an entrepreneurial, a tech entrepreneur driven environment. And their approach was not just how can we add value to our clients based on our knowledge and expertise, but how can we use Our firm's own internal technological capacities to add value to to a deal. I raise this because when you look, when we study economics as students, we, we learn about the concept of economies of scale, the efficiencies generated by operating on a large scale. One doesn't really see that with accounting firms and law firms, uh, that when it comes to professional services, it doesn't appear as though that there are any economies of scale. It seems like the larger, certainly law firms get, the, the higher average costs go. D- could you envision a, a time where maybe some of, some of these advances in technology may, you know, Web3, what have you, Lead to economies of scale in the legal profession, or is that too so? Mistaken?
1: No, I, I think you're, you've hit the nail uh, on the head, as they say. You know, if I'm drafting a master services agreement and you're drafting a master services agreement, um, why is it that we? Why is it that the wheel has to be invented twice? Um, why? Why can't clients one through five come in and, and get the same? master services agreement, template, um, have it customized um, with AI, and leverage technology in order to get their needs met efficiently. Uh, That's where the legal industry needs to be moving towards. Uh, that goes back to my comment about gatekeeping is that, you know, it's a preservation of the profession. Um, I think doctors have done a pretty good job of realizing that, you know, there are some efficiencies that they can realize with technology, certain with robots, um, and how robots are involved in surgery nowadays, and your uh, virtual visits. Um, doctors have kind of embraced it, I've seen. Um, the medical profession, but I haven't seen the legal profession do so. And, and, and it's my hope that, that we move towards that. And certainly within the bite community, we're working on some things to kind of, um, you know, reduce costs for clients, but uh, there is a way to go. There is a way to go.
0: And in the early nineties, I recall, when people were first talking about using robots in surgery, the concern at that time was, should things go awry? there's a botched operation who's responsible who's liable where does liability lie you can see similar sort of concerns arising that if i go to a robo lawyer do i and i get bad advice do i blame the person who wrote the algorithm do i do i blame the service provider that granted me access to that portal i mean I mean, these are the types of issues that these are the types of uh queries and quandaries that are gonna that are gonna arise in a situation. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, but it it's worth trying, you know. We're we'll start out with some hurdles and, and challenges, but everything has to evolve in my mind.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean it it took took the industrialization of America and the you know, the difficult cases that had to be you know, decided regarding railroads and property rights damaged crops but from that the legal system took shape so uh the, the, it was painful but but it, um some order emerged from, from 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 the madness um is is there is there anything else you'd like to add more more broadly uh regarding tech really? That's
1: it, I- yeah i thank you so much for having me on the show it's been wonderful as always chatting with you aj and i'm sure that I'm we'll have uh, we'll have more regulatory ramblings whether in person or virtually
0: looking forward to it thank you again jamelia cheers and to our viewers thank you for joining us until next time